Thank you, David. And thank you all for joining us again uh, online this weekend. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Acts chapter 12. uh, As we continue in our sermon series, Acts the Church in Motion. Now previously in Acts, sounds kind of like a TV series, doesn't it? Previously in Acts. Jesus promised in the very beginning that his people and the power of his spirit were going to take his message, not just to Jerusalem, but to all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we looked last week at how that gospel message of Jesus had now planted itself in the pagan cosmopolitan city of Antioch and was now flourishing in that community there. Now, next week, In Acts 13, we're going to pick up in Antioch again, and we're going to see how the gospel starts hitting the road as Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, and that's going to take up a big chunk of the rest of the book of Acts. But for this week, we're going to go back to Jerusalem in Acts 12, and we're going to see one of the last stories in Acts of Peter. And Peter really fades into the background after this whole story, but only after giving us a vivid and at times pretty entertaining story of what it looks like to trust in the power of God, even in the midst of our powerlessness. Now, before I dive into the story, though, there have been more than one occasion when I've been on a plane and it hits some pretty crazy turbulence. And I'm not talking little rain cloud turbulence. I'm talking about the plane suddenly drops, your wife squeezes the blood out of your hand, and even the flight attendant looks nervous kind of turbulence. Where you're riding smooth and you're feeling in control of life until suddenly the plane drops and you're reminded, oh, I'm 30,000 feet up in the air and I have no real control over what goes on in this airplane right now. That kind of experience. And it's amazing to me, when that drop happens, how many people all of a sudden start calling on the name of Jesus? Praying, of course, right? But it is true that when we reach the end of our power and what we can control, we naturally start looking for some religion or some higher power to step in. And when I think about these last three or four months... And think back to February, we were cruising, it was smooth. March hit, and it felt like the plane dropped. These last three or four months have been turbulent, to say the least. But as that plane dropped, it reminded us of just how out of control we actually are. And when that plane dropped and the turbulence hit, is when I started to realize just how much stock I put into the powers and the authorities, those who are in control in our own society. But when that turbulence hits, our first reaction is to say, what's the pilot doing? Where is he taking us? And we automatically start asking the same thing of our leaders and those who are in control. And this plane that we're currently on right now as a society, there's a lot of great things happening. There's people helping people. There's people speaking hope. They're, they're, they're coming along the el- alongside the elderly. They're standing up for those who, who, whose voice haven't been heard before. There's a lot of good things happening in the midst of this turbulence. But yet at the same time, the plane has dropped. 
and we're reminded of just how powerless we are. And in Acts 12, (laughs) we see the early church, our early brothers and sisters, hit a turbulent time. The Apostle James has been killed by the power-hungry Herod Agrippa. The plane has dropped. And now, their leader, Peter, has been arrested and appears like he's headed for the same fate. And this church now acutely aware of their weakness and the dead end that they've reached in their human power. What do they do? It's interesting, at this point of dead end is when they discover who their God really is and the power of prayer. Let's pick it up. Let's read this story together. We're in Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "'You are out of your mind.' But she kept insisting that it is so, and they kept saying, "'It is an angel.'" But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Will you pray after me? Say, God, open my heart, open my mind, show me what you want me to see. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. The Apostle James is dead. Peter's been arrested. And Herod appears to be triumphing. And while it's true that Peter had been arrested before, this time would have felt very different. Because this was now after years of suffering and persecution at the hands of various authorities in Jerusalem. And this is, they've barely begun grieving the death of James before Peter is arrested. If you and I were in that situation, I think we would all feel somewhat hopeless and certain that death was coming for Peter. It is as if wave after wave of difficulty just kept hitting this church. Can you relate with that at all? We're certainly in a season where it feels like wave after wave keeps coming upon us. And we're kind of come up for air. But there's not a ton of relief. And it, even the most faithful of followers of Jesus in moments like this start asking at times, God, where are you? I don't feel you right now. And in the midst of this turbulence... Where do we turn? See, there is only one God who can claim to understand our struggle and walk with us through it. Again, we're in Jerusalem where the early brothers and sisters in Christ have been experiencing wave after wave of suffering and persecution. First, it was the chief priests. And then it was the self-righteous Pharisees like Saul. And now, the king of the Jews, Herod Agrippa. It's like, boom, boom, boom. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, the name Herod automatically makes you cringe. Because that word Herod consistently stands for someone who is always standing against what God is wanting to do in the world. First, you had Herod the Great, who was Agrippa's grandfather. He's the one who sought to kill the babies in Bethlehem looking for Jesus. Next, you had Herod... Uh, Antipas, who was Herod Agrippa's uncle, who mocked Jesus before he was crucified. Then, now you have Herod Agrippa, who is going before the city, trying to please the Jews by taking the leaders of the early church and putting them to death. See, Herod, you could think of him as the textbook picture of what it looks like to serve the kingdom, not of God, but of self. Herod may have appeared to worship God, the God of the Jews, or maybe he would worship the God of the Romans. But really, it was just he would appear to worship whatever because he was really worshiping and serving himself. And when we are, our main loyalty is to ourselves, that means that our security is in our strength, our skills, our power, our political clout. And if our security is in our own strength, then our greatest fear is in our weakness. Because the one thing we fear above all is losing control. Being powerless, that we would be exposed for how weak we really are. 
And living for ourselves may be great for a time, but when we're living for ourselves at the same time, there's this crazy pressure to now be self-sufficient. When our self-sufficiency is our security, it may be great when things are going well, when the plane is smooth, but once that plane drops, a pandemic hits, the market crashes, we lose our jobs, depression hits, or we lose someone precious to us and we could not be there for them. And that moment, all of a sudden, our weakness is exposed. And we're reminded of how powerless we are. And if our whole lives we're used to living for ourselves and depending on our self-sufficiency, in that moment when the plane drops, we have really one of two options, ways to respond, if we want to insist on continuing to trusting in ourselves. Number one, we may try to deny our weakness. Denying our weakness may look like I just need to convince myself that it's not as bad as it is. Or I'm going to, instead of feeling out of control, I'm just going to go binge eat something, drink alcohol, watch TV so I don't have to feel that way. Or it might be, I just need to get really busy because when I'm busy, now I feel like I'm in control of my life. But all the while, I'm trying to run away from and deny my weakness. Or number two, in the face of our own powerlessness, we may end up in despair. Because now, in light of my weakness, and in trusting in myself, I don't know if I can actually believe for change anymore. We grow cynical. We want to just give up. But Jesus came to show us that there's a completely other way than just (laughs) self-sufficiency. Jesus came to show us that weakness can be a pathway to God's power. Our rightful God and King, the one whose words spoke life to everything on earth, talk about power, did not use his power as a way to serve himself, but he took on weakness, human flesh as a servant of love. And when guys like Herod are busy stomping around trying to convince themselves and others that they are strong enough, Jesus unreservedly came alongside the broken, the vulnerable, the powerless to heal them and set them free. Isn't it interesting that if you read the Gospels, it's always the weak who encounter God's power not those faking strength. And when the self-sufficient, arrogant powers of the world saw Jesus as a threat, Jesus did not turn and try to fight them with the sword or try to out-insult them. He instead took on weakness, took on death. Then in going down to death, when the powers of this world thought they had defeated him once and for all, He went down into death in order to break open the gates of hell and make a way that we might be liberated from death ourselves. And scripture tells us that we receive his life. That we receive a relationship with God and his spirit. 
Not because we have worked hard enough or long enough or diligently enough to earn or become worthy of it. But the amazing news is, is that his gift of salvation that he has given us is something that he just says, it is for us to believe and trust it. When we get to a place of admitting our weakness and admitting our failure, admitting our sin, admitting our guilt and all the ways we have fallen short of the glory of God, it is in the place of recognizing our weakness and powerlessness that God says, all right, now I am going to fill that up with my power and show you who I am. Time and time again, Jesus shows us the power of God is waiting to meet us in our weakness, our deepest grief, and our most acute pain. Why? Because he wants to heal it. (laughs) And then in Acts 12, the early church is completely powerless, grieving the loss of James, wave after wave of persecution. But if you notice, they did not try to deny reality, nor did they fall into despair. But in their weakness, they turned someplace else. And when we are weak, prayer is where we learn to humbly rest in the reality of who is in control. Herod killed James, arrested Peter, and surrounds Peter with four squads of soldiers. Talk about overcompensating. (laughs) Again, his strength was his security. But what does the church do? Do they pick up the sword? Do they give up? Do they try to bust Peter out of there? It says in verse 5 of chapter 12, and this hit me. It says that they began to have earnest prayer for him, Peter, was made to God by the church. And confession, that hit me hard this week. Because I realized how many times when I feel powerless, my knee-jerk reaction is to get busy, it's not to pray. You know, it always used to make me laugh. Uh, pastor George, who was a previous pastor here at Trinity, whenever we would say, hey, maybe we should pray about this, he'd always joke around, has it come to this? Because he knew that for whatever reason, prayer ends up becoming our last stop instead of our first. And I've seen more often than not in this season and I had to apologize to God myself. I'm like, God, I'm sorry. Like, this whole pandemic hit and my first reaction was to get busy. And as I've thought about it further, I realized this get busy mentality is something that's pretty much embedded in the American way. You know, America has taught us a lot of great values of hard work, perseverance, dedication, and courage. But as a nation, our culture, we don't do weak well. We don't do powerless well. New England, you know, we celebrate the revolutionaries here with their muskets and sheer determination defeated the greatest empire in the world. We love heroes like Rambo, Jack Ryan, James Bond. Why? Because they win every time. And we love winning. But when I look around the world, at, at, at Christians around the world, and look at our own country, I realize that we, while we have 
things that we add to the global church as a nation, one thing we learn from the global church is what it means to really pray. And I realize one of the reasons why I think what we as a nation, we don't jump to prayer is because we're afraid of our weakness. We're afraid of admitting when we've become powerless. But I believe that we're in a season in, the, in, the nat- in, in this point in time in history as a nation when God is teaching the American church what it means to pray. When we've reached the end of ourselves, it's when we start to earnestly pray. But I wrestle with that and I struggle with that because I thought, God, like, you know, what good does my prayer even do? I want to know that the ways I'm spending my time are actually accomplishing things. But what does prayer even do? I mean, haven't you already determined what you want to do? Do my prayers really change anything? I mean, I'm sure that the early church, they were praying for James. But then James was killed. So aren't you just going to do whatever you're going to do with Peter? What difference do my prayers actually make? And as I was wrestling with that this week, I came back again to this word, earnest prayer. And I want you to track with me for a second because I want to show you something that God showed me. You know, there's only one other place in the New Testament where the words earnest and prayer go together. Do you want to guess where that might be? Only one other place. The hint, Luke wrote that too. And in Luke 22... Jesus is in the garden the night before he's about to go to the cross. He's in one of his weakest points. And he's praying in Luke twenty-two forty-two. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup, a metaphor of his suffering and death. Remove this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is asking the Father, if, could, could there be another way? And of course, we know the answer is no, there's not. But pay attention to what happens next. Because in verse 43, Jesus doesn't stop praying. He knows the answer is he must go forward to suffering. But he doesn't stop praying. It says that an angel from heaven strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. What do we pick up from this? See, in this moment, Jesus prayed. He said, God, will you shift things? And the answer was no. But when he realized that the answer was no, it was an earnest prayer that God gave Jesus the strength to say yes. Sometimes God's answers to our prayers might be yes. Sometimes no, sometimes not yet. But it was in this moment of earnest prayer where Jesus got the strength to say yes. Sometimes God answers the way we want. Sometimes he doesn't. But what he promises is that when we bring our weakness to him, he will strengthen us. See, sometimes we like to think of prayer as the means by which we take control. (laughs) But really prayer is where we recognize who is in control. When we give consistent time, to talk with our Father, 
our panic finds peace before the one who holds all power. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to God praying with my own agenda. Thing that I want him to do. And how many times he's come back around and says, okay, (laughs) but let me show you what I want to do in you. And let me show you what I actually want to do through you. Prayer is where our weakness meets his strength. And when we talk about earnest prayer, there's not this clear formula for what it's supposed to look like. When we talk about prayer, prayer itself is, 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 a, is a heart posture, conversation, language between God the Father and you his child, between Jesus our, our teacher and you his student, between the Holy Spirit, your helper, and you the one being filled with his power. Prayer is, is a state of awareness, not just to ourselves, but to Christ and what he is doing. But when we talk about earnest prayer or praying earnestly, this is when we intentionally set aside a moment, put the phone away, right? No phone interruptions, to focus solely on being with God. Again, that's not a formula. You may want to sit, stand, walk, drive. You may want to talk, be silent, write in a journal, read scripture. But you're coming to God, not faking strength, but just as you are listening. Prayer, you may thank him, you may confess sin, you may cry out to him in the midst of your trial, you may lift up the needs of others. You may pray alone, you may pray with others, but it's focused on who our God is. And setting apart a time and a moment, that's what earnest prayer is. And when we set apart that time and bring all of ourselves, the good and the ugly before him, something starts to happen. Listen, I don't pretend to understand what happens in the spiritual world or the metaphysical realm when God's people pray. But one thing I do know is that when we pray, something shifts. We may not always see the effects of it with our spiritual eyes. But the power of God moves beyond our limits when we earnestly pray. So getting back to the story. Again, one of my favorites. It's the night before Jesus, or not Jesus, Peter's public trial and his most certain death. The church is earnestly praying for him. And what is Peter doing? He is getting some deep rim sleep. Don't you just love this guy? I mean, he has two soldiers on either side chained up and he is sawing logs. I mean, is that not a picture of confidence in the power of God? And he's sleeping so deep that when an angel shows up in the room in glory, you would think that the light in the room would have woken him up. The angel comes in and Peter's still asleep. And the angel's like... Kicks him in the side, wakes him up, and he's sleeping so deep that even after the chains fall off his wrists, he gets his shoes and his clothes on, he walks past one set of guards and then another and walks out the gate. It's only after he is free that he realizes, oh wait, yeah, that just happened. Guys, 
I just pray over all of you right now in the name of Jesus that we would sleep like that as a church. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But it also shows that Peter had nothing to do with his freedom. He brought nothing to that. It was simply the power of God. And then Peter heads for Mary's house. This is not Jesus' mom. This is a different Mary. But apparently she had a big house because there's a lot of people there praying. And he shows up and knocks on the gate. Servant girl Rhoda comes to the door. And this is such a great scene. She sees Peter. She hears him. She's excited. But instead of opening the gate, she leaves him there. So he's just kind of like, all right, well. She goes in there. She tells everybody that Peter's at the gate. And just to show how human this early church was, they say, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Peter can't be in the gate. It's more believable that Peter's guardian angel or maybe a spirit back from the dead is at the gate than Peter himself is at the gate. We, We actually believe that more. And she continues to insist. And so they eventually, yeah, they go out and they see that it's Peter. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've been surprised when God actually answers your prayer? But then Peter, standing there, he knows that the guards are going to be looking for him the next morning once they realize that he's missing. So at this point, I I believe, and many scholars believe, this is the point where Peter passes the baton to James, brother of Jesus, to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We'll see him again in Acts 15. But he passes the baton and then he goes into hiding where people can't find him, where Herod can't find him. But as God's people prayed... Whether they realized it or not, the arrogant powers of this world proved weak against his strength. Herod was sure he was in control. There were, but yeah, there was no sign of Peter the next morning. Which I, and then Acts verse 18 sounds very distinguished. It says, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Put it in our language... Herod was seeing red. He was blowing a gasket. He lost his fuse. He was flying off the handle. He was going off the deep end. Why? Because his weakness had been exposed. And it wasn't long after that. Herod heads to Caesarea. And he's there before a crowd in his splendid royal robes giving a speech. And they think it's so great that they call him a God, not a man. And when he does not give glory to God, the text says that an angel of the Lord, perhaps the same one who liberated Peter, struck down Herod with a disease. And he died. Then Acts chapter 12 verse 24 reads, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And so it all started. James was dead. Peter arrested. Herod triumphing. But it ends. Herod is dead. Peter is free. And the word of God is triumphing. (laughs) There is nothing impossible for our God. And this story comes as a clear reminder That no matter how bad or uncontrollable things may feel right now, no matter how much evil seems to be triumphing, God and his kingdom win in the end. And we are at a point in history where we may feel like 
James has been killed, and Peter seems to be headed that way. We may be tempted to despair or deny how bad it is, but the story's not done. For we worship a God who 2,000 years ago, (laughs) when he stepped out of that tomb, he left his grave clothes behind. And as he did, he sent the evil powers of this world an eviction notice. And he says, their time is short. And then once he spoke to his disciples before he ascended to heaven, he said, the Holy Spirit's coming upon you. And it was when they were doing what? They were praying and waiting that the power of God and his spirit came upon them and the world was forever changed. And today, listen, I again, I don't know how to metaphysically, theologically, spiritually unpack how it all happens. But one thing I do know is that when we earnestly pray, something happens. And as the church, it's still important to work hard, persevere, reach out to others, work for justice, serve Jesus in a variety of ways. Absolutely. But earnest prayer shifts our focus from what we can do in our own strength to what only God can do in His. And when God's people earnestly pray, chains begin to break. And as your pastor... I confess to you that I have been so quick to try to do so many things in my own strength instead of God's. And I didn't even realize it until we hit this powerless season. But this is an area where God has been hitting me and showing me, Kirk, I want to spend more intentional time with you. Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, said one time, he says, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I want to grow in this area. And you know what? I give you permission. (laughs) Check in on me. See if I'm growing in this area. Because I want to grow together with you. And as we do that, Hold me accountable. And I want to challenge you as well. What can it look like for us to be, to lean in to more consistent, earnest prayer? Many of you, you are spending time in prayer. I know some of you, you have alarms on your phones that remind you daily to pray. I love that. And as a church, What would it look like for each of us to lean into earnest prayer, leaning on the strength of God instead of just our own? You know, this whole season I've been asking God, God, how how can we possibly serve our community during this COVID-19 season? I mean, like, like, we're so limited. God, what can we possibly do? And this week he reminded me, he says, why don't you start prayer walking through your town? I thought... Well, yeah, why not? And I encourage us as a church. What could it look like if if you, your family, your small group met up outside? Again, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it safe here. Met up outside and started walking through your neighborhoods or the middle of your towns or certain or certain past certain buildings or of influence and just prayed. And lifted up 
our hearts cry, saying, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would that look like? And we all begin stepping out and walking and praying through our communities. One thing I do know is that when we humbly pray, we can be sure that God is going to expand our heart for people. And he may even open a door for us to talk to somebody about the hope we have in Jesus. And yeah, if you're prayer walking, you can talk to people as they walk by, totally loud. But the point is, is that we are spending intentional time lifting up these things that burden our hearts and our anxieties and our weakness and in our powerlessness, and we're going to the one who truly has power. When God's people earnestly pray, chains begin to break. What do you want to take before God? Let's pray. Father, this message, this passage And you have rocked me with it (laughs) this week. But the amazing thing is, I don't feel like this passage has hit me with a sense of guilt. But hope. Because as I look and see who you are, all of a sudden I realize, oh my goodness. When I reach the end of myself, that isn't the end. That's really just the beginning of where you show up and show who you are. And so, God, I pray that you will begin to do something in this church and in North Reading and in Andover and Middleton and Wakefield and and, and, and Methuen and Wilmington and all the surrounding communities that only you can do. God, that you will begin to breathe your spirit out across this region of the world. That you'll begin to to, to explode in power through your people who no longer afraid of our weakness or our powerlessness, no longer trying to deny or, or in despair, but in hope, seeing the God who came to walk alongside of us in our weakness in order to meet us there, in order to give us your power and your life. May we live that out. And God, I pray that you motivate us, move us out in prayer. Show us what that looks like. Oh man, we love you. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen.